and shivers down your spine. Shrieking skulls will shock your soul and seal your doom tonight. Spooky, scaly skeletons speak with such a screech that you'll shake and shudder. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. Mike DiFilippo. Evan Mazza. Jess Mastricola. I'm intern Caroline. And we are doing a special Halloween episode today because trick-or-treating is right around the corner and there's some weird stuff that happens during Halloween. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we started doing this. This started as a vanity project for me because I love Halloween. I am a horror film enthusiast as a... As you guys know, you guys do the horror movies during Halloween. Is this the, the time for you to? Halloween's a gateway. It's a gateway holiday, Ed. I. It's only. It only gets us through to Thanksgiving and Christmas. I'm not a horror person. I never liked it. I. I don't like spooky things. It's. I could take it or leave it. I love the horror aspect of it. Like I think it's a. It's a great holiday. Um, but I, I definitely do agree. It's kind of like it, it signals that the rest of the fun part of the season starting going into Thanksgiving then Christmas time. Mike, your love of Reese's, this should be your favorite holiday. I think you're a liar. <laughs> I'm calling you out. My consumption increases 200%. Um, I like horror movies. And when Mike and I were partners, I used to enjoy watching horror movies and listening to him scream. Uh, if you remember the taking of Deborah, whatever it was. Where you I definitely. Oh, yeah. I definitely. So I'm, I'm the type of person that watches horror movies with like through my fingers. <laughs> I want to see it, but I don't really want to see it. Yeah. yeah. For me, for horror, I prefer reading like a cosmic horror. I'm a big Lovecraft fan, if anybody knows. There you go. Oh, I, I watched that show. So good. Yeah, it's not the same thing, but nice try. <laughs> <laughs> Jess, what about you? Can I get brownie points at least? No. You're an intern. Get coffee. I watched The Exorcist when I was like an adult. And when I say watched, I um, had my eyes closed the whole time and just listened to it. And I think it made it more horrifying. So. Right, you can't. That's, well, yeah, that's what, it's, one of, it's one of the great things about it. Like you can't, you can't see the big bad, which is one of the things that I, I like about that particular genre. Um, and you know, it, it, during this season, right, you see all these films that are out, and a lot of the the slasher films are kind of loosely based off of Ed Gein. Um, you know, you have your Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Psycho, all those things are based off of this guy. He was a serial killer in the fifties and sixties. Um, Made you know, face and, masks out of people's skin. Out of he action. did some real. Yeah. He did some real Hannibal Lecter stuff. It was he, he did. So Hannibal Lecter is mostly based off of him, and like he did, he made actual face masks from faces. He made uh, lampshades out of skin. It was a whole thing. It, um, it actually counts towards PPE. So don't <laughs> knock the guy. <laughs> He's a doomsday, doomsday prepper. Mr. Gain, is this a triple layered mask? Well, <laughs> it, 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 this is an actual. This is a real face mask. <laughs> so oh and that's God. a. So you see a lot of of those psychoses in these types of films, but we wanted to see, are there things that are related to different medical issues that we can actually treat or that actually exist in medicine? Because usually you see all these horror movie stuff. There has to be some kind of explanation for it. Um, And we started getting into some of the the more interesting psychoses of this. And during this season, one of the things you see a lot are possession films. Um, I saw The Exorcist when I was a child, uh, which probably explains a lot. And... (laughs) Then, you know, you, you see like The Exorcism of Emily Rose as a classic and all those things. So when you see these films as they relate to possession, they tend to look like psych cases. And in the case of, for example, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, it's based off a lawsuit, which actually debated is possession real or is it a psychosis? And so we jumped into the literature on this and it turns out there's actually papers that have documented uh, 
possession as a factor of psychosis. And it is actually listed as a subset of dissociative identity disorder in the DSM-5, which makes it technically a clinical disorder. Um, I asked a clinical psychologist about this who was also surprised to find that it was in the DSM-5 under dissociative identity disorders, but there it is. So Mike, run us through dissociative identity disorders real quick, and then we'll talk about uh, how it manifests and then how we can possibly treat it in the field. Sure. Um, so dissociative identity disorder, uh, formerly like called multiple personality disorder or split personality disorder, um, really just encompasses a range of disease processes. There's three main types of dissociative identity disorder. You get uh, depersonalization or derealization. So kind of like the shell of a person. You get dissociative amnesia, like a dissociative fugue. Sometimes you'll hear about people will suffer a severe trauma, and then next thing they know, they wake up in another state and they don't recollect how they get there. Um, or someone just appears somewhere not remembering their name, not remembering where they came from with no I ID on them. Yeah, that was um, sophomore year of college for me. <laughs> and then uh, dissociative identity disorder itself uh, is like commonly seen in like lay public as like multiple personality disorder. But also just to like touch on this um, aspect of it, as we're talking about like the demonic possession, if you look back in literature, even from like thousands of years ago, not, not like medical or scholarly literature, just like books and pamphlets, um, and there's stories about people being demonically possessed, even in the Bible or, or whatever religious text you look at, a lot of this has been reanalyzed and, it, and it's belief that this is some spectrum of psychotic disease. Um, sometimes, you know, the stuff is actually really well laid out to the point that people can say like, you know, this person appears to be decompensated schizophrenia that was just mischaracterized as a demonic possession. And interestingly, with the hallucinations and delusions you get with psychotic disorder, hallucinations being a disturbment of like sensory reality around you. So you can have tactile, auditory, visual uh, hallucinations. Uh, they all seem to be based off of the person's uh, social environment that they grew up in. So it's no surprise that someone coming from a very religious community, uh, no matter what the religion is, all of them do involve some capacity of demonic possession or jinns or whatever term you want to apply to it. Um, that usually encapsulates a lot of the negative persecutory delusions people will feel or experience. So just want to put like that disclaimer on it that, you know, a lot of this has been untreated, unrecognized mental health disease that only really has been coming to the forefront of medical treatment now within the last like 100, 200 years as sort of religion and, and medical science are separating. So I could just say for me and Caroline, I mean, we went to Catholic school. So the demonic possessions and exorcism, it just seems like coming home. It's just, it's just really nice. You know, <laughs> Wait, do they talk about that in Catholic school? Uh, they do some of your no. some of your weirder theology teachers will get into it. Um, Come on, I, so I not when to, I went to school. <laughs> I went to Christian school, and they definitely talked about it there. About like you know, I think this could be a whole separate podcast, but you know, I think sometimes <laughs> sometimes very religious people will attribute negative things happening to oh, you know, the evil, you know, Satan working in mysterious ways, or we think this person may be possessed. Have you taken a look at their eyes? And there certainly is like a certain stigmata of both appearance and character caricatures of people that do suffer from psychotic disorders. That it's very easy to just like, like put a name on it as demonic possession. But, you know, more to the point, what Ed was getting to with these articles, we found that there does seem to be a persistent, um, characterization of a demonic possession subset of dissociative disorder. 
and psychotic disorder in the sense that there are patients that do have similar characteristics among all their presentations of either dissociative identity disorder or psychosis that the common theme is some element of demonic possession, which is important to recognize because when you do have certain things that crop up that have similarities, then your treatment can be further fine-tuned uh, to those things. And in some cases, like I'm sure we'll get to talking about, like some of these uh, doctors brought in like priests and other like religious people to kind of help with the treatment of these demonically possessed, quote unquote, individuals suffering from psychosis. See, what you need, is, you need an old priest and a young priest. That's, that's the trick. <laughs> that's you want to get both starts. of them together. So if you, I, a serious question, if you, if you bless a normal saline syringe, does that make it holy water? Yes. Actually. Yeah. Catholic. Yeah. In Catholic religion. Yeah. You can basically do a blessing and make holy water. Listen, these days, the only thing I bless is the rains down in Africa. Uh, hey. uh, <laughs> Why is there a lot of groaning? <laughs> there's always gonna be there's always gonna be that one guy that, that's just obsessed with that song and it's you kevin oh what well, all right whatever no i love you it's okay no, you don't. He, he hides the that song in my playlist on spotify yeah all right that's pretty funny I'll very tricksy very so, tricksy so here's an interesting thing so i'm thinking about this going on a call for somebody who may be altered mental status and you know you walk into the house and you notice that this person is completely out there so the, the first thing that I like, want to what mention do you is do? Like, what the, do you the do reason. Now? So part of the reason that we, I wanted to bring this up because I started rabbit holing down this stuff and it, it just got more and more uh, interesting where it, it, I'm imagining walking into this house, right? Someone combative, just kind of wiling out and someone comes up to you and they're like, I think they're possessed by a demon, right? The first thing that you're going to think of is like, well, that's bullshit, right? But it turns out there's actually literature that supports this. Um, and again, they're, they're all subsets generally of dissociative identity disorder, but we have uh, a case from the British Medical Journal in 2011. We have right. a paper from 1998 that had 20 different subjects in China. Um, we have a paper from Johns Hopkins in 20, 2009 that shows a history of possession and a paper from 2016 that shows dissociative trance. And again, this is something that's listed in the DSM um, and it exists in the psychology literature. All this is going to be linked in the show notes for those that don't believe me because I didn't believe me in the first place either. I think it's important though to distinguish that I don't think medical societies are coming out and saying like, hey, my boys, by the way, demons are real. FYI, oh, no, 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 no. And now we got this new disorder. I, I think it's just very important to, to, to point out for our listeners that what, we're, what we are discussing is that there's regional and societal variations in psychosis, and these are manifesting as demonic possession. So, but yeah, Danny, to get to your point, like, you know, you're the ALS provider, you're the BLS provider, you're a cop, you're just Joe Schmo walking down the street and someone comes screaming out, oh my God, help, help, help. My son, he's possessed by a demon. Like, you know, what's the first thing you do? And I, I think, you know, as an ER doc, I think you just treat this as agitation, um, yep. like a severe form of agitation. And just with the, with the, the thought being in the back of your head, like, this is probably on the on the film or on on, on the spectrum of uh, psychotic disorders. So that would certainly fine tune what medication management, if it goes that route, I would use. So, for instance, you know, if you're thinking psychotic disorder or something along like a schizophrenia style picture, I, I would stay away from ketamine, not to exacerbate like an underlying psychosis, and more so stick towards either antipsychotic if you do carry it, like a Haldol, Dropiridol, or um, uh, olanzapine, um, or you can do benzodiazepine management, which is a lot of like regionally here in the Northeast, the majority of areas do benzodiazepine only management pre-hospitally. So like a Versed, uh, IM style picture. 
and just as a reference point the benzos <laughs> that's that's the trick you got to get the benzo to get the demon out of you um but again this is something that and it's like ghosts in your blood wasn't that in the book of matthew it was benzos or something like that <laughs> well and that's that's one of the things about this is that you know these patients whether it's and you know we've had endless conversations in EMS about excited delirium, excited agitation, whatever you want to call it, um, in a much different context. But again, this is something where these patients are going to have repeat episodes. Um, nothing in the literature shows that they're actually like there's, there's a curative treatment, um, and it tends to just be you know they have psychotic breaks through all these things. So, you know, th the possibility of you in the field getting a call that is someone who is air quotes possessed by a demon is not zero you know um and even the dogs in the background agree that this is something that you might actually see eventually so my 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 mom is very religious and she's like dogs can sense demons oh no so pretty so that's that's actually a pretty that's a, a very popular thought oh, no. um, that explains why you had seven dogs <laughs> <laughs> only seven just in case one failed <laughs> it's more and yes this is coming from this is coming from you kevin who you have zero dogs right i have four dogs each of which is their own demon so <laughs> take from so that what you that's will. that's the true galaxy brain move so i guess i guess how you do this is you manage this just like any other agitated patient in crisis we don't want to torque the person up anymore we certainly don't want five people speaking to them all at the same time in different voices um you know, low voices, turn your lights down, don't shine things in their faces, really want to try to lower the stimulation level, and then you can get close enough to get something on board. Um, and Mike, you're saying benzos or some kind of antipsychotic is a better idea than ketamine. Yeah. So ideally, a lot of the literature is being borne out to show that even just like solo antipsychotic, something like, you know, Lanzapine, Zyprexa, um, Haldol is pretty sufficient. Um, and then, you know, to actually manage that acute agitation where you think you always have to ask, is this person a danger to themselves right now, either physically a danger to themselves or is getting themselves so amped up that they're going to have like a heart attack from how agitated they are, or are they a danger to other people, meaning like they're so violent or whatever else. That's when you should really be weighing in. Do I want to add a benzodiazepine to this? Uh, because that's really going to like acutely knock them out um, and sedate them. And then obviously, anytime you're doing a sedating procedure like that, you always have to be prepared to like intervene with airway or other procedures uh, that could be like a, a sequelae of that. That being said, like a lot of places, like where I worked as a medic exclusively, we never carried antipsychotics. It was benzodiazepines only. So you work with what you got. Um, I had, I, we had Haldol for a while, but they took it, they took it off because nobody ever used it. Right. Um, one other thing I do want to point out about pharmacology, if, we, if you have to manage these people chemically, uh, you should definitely have them on entitled CO2. Um, Absolutely. Yep. Without a doubt, um, monitor their respiratory status. Um, don't believe the hype on any of these meds that people say, well, you won't lose airway reflexes, you won't lose respiratory drive. Uh, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And um, I know Kevin right. and I, Kevin and I in our practice, when we work together, anybody that gets anything that is could cause an alteration of consciousness gets a nasal untitled. Well, I think that's just very reasonable practice. And I, I also think that, you know, when you're approaching patients like this, especially in the EMS arena, where you actually have no information on somebody, sometimes absolutely none, you, you do not know what else they have on board that they took prior to you getting there. So you don't know if the benzo you're going to give is going to be additive to something that they have on board. Like what if they took a speedball or something like that? And, you know, you're giving them a benzodiazepine load and then all of a sudden something else kicks in, they really get into shit Creek. 
Um, so that's, that's one. And then two, the other thing I'd like to add, just talking about the pharmacological aspects of these medications is if you're going to be giving a antipsychotic, one of the major things that happens with antipsychotic use is QTC prolongation. So once they're sedated or at least adequately relaxed to the point, try and get at least a 12 lead on them just to monitor the QTC length. Not that it ha happens commonly, but it is actually a black box warning with a lot of these uh, antipsychotic medications. So that's actually a good note, Mike, because yeah. that's that's part of the reason that we stopped using drugs like droperidol. Um, you know, we, we started using ketamine for these excited delirium patients. And again, just as a refresher, the, the dose for ketamine should be four to one IM to IV. So if you're going to give 100 milligrams IV, you should be giving close to 400 IM. Um, and it, it obviously it depends on your system. Um, we're not, you know, giving medical advice, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, with something like droperidol, where this was taken off, this was given a black box warning and taken off the market because they did different studies that showed QTC prolongation at doses at 25 to 250 milligrams. But the recommended dose for droperidol is five milligrams. So it's, it's something that we kind of have to have to watch. Chris Caldwell talked a lot about this um, when he was in Denver. Um, and he's out in San Francisco now. But one of those things that, that you know, he mentioned a lot was you can just give 5-Adroperidol. There's almost no side effects that they saw, no QTC prolongation. It's more dose dependent. But of course, if you're giving something that you know, is 150 times the recommended dose, you're going to see some side effects. So it's just it's careful management of these patients, and you're going to want to make sure. That, and this is this is any patient who you know is agitated or whatever is just kind of wiling out in general. You want to watch how you're sedating them. You know, so if you're giving them ketamine, you want to watch their airway. And also, we should talk about restraining the patients too, because you know how do you properly restrain someone that believes that they're possessed and now has this superhuman strength? You know, that's you started seeing cases years ago of patients being proned. And they had airway occlusions from that. So um, I want to bring Jess in on this. And Jess, if you have someone who is like this agitated, believes that they're possessed by a demon, how would you manage? We, we talk about managing them in the field. How would you manage them in the ER? I mean, we usually try to um, talk people down first. That's always our go-to. But I mean, obviously, you're going to get patients that you either can't communicate with them or... Um, when trying to communicate with them, just agitates them further. Um, we typically do just resort to chemical sedation. We find it to be the least, not invasive, but the least harmful to the patient because it um, prevents us from having to restrain them physically. Uh, but unfortunately, most of the time, if someone's that amped up, we end up putting them in like four-point locking restraints until the sedation like kicks in. Um, so we have like. Uh, very strict every 15 minutes, the patient has to be assessed for whether the restraints are still needed. And then you have to do this whole documentation process of, you know, it's like a, it's called a debrief, a safety debrief about how long the restraints were on. If the patient was included in the decision to put the restraints on, which obviously we try to, <laughs> but for, for the most part, we tend to use um, a combination. Um, the most common is um, Haldol and Ativan or, um, or Benadryl, uh, commonly called a two and five. So it's just, it's kind of a, the idea that there's a shorter acting one and a slightly longer acting one in combination to help control the patient. And hopefully by the time they wake up, they're a little calmer and can be reasoned with, which usually is the case by the time they wake up. Yeah. So the idea between the, the Haldol and Ativan, so, you know, the, the benzodiazepine antipsychotic combo, 
um, is that when you have someone that that's acute, that acutely agitated and psychotic, um, or in the throes of whatever mood disorder they're in, that that you know they're they're a danger to themselves or others, you give a benzodiazepine for rapid sedation. Um, and the whole point of the benzodiazepine is to sedate the patient to allow the antipsychotic to kick in um, and to prevent further harm to themselves or others. There's actually a lot of debate in the emergency medicine literature as to which uh, benzodiazepine is best. And I think you're starting to actually see a shift away from Ativan more towards Versed. Versed has a quicker onset than Ativan and also has less of an action time. The whole point being as the ER doctor perspective, I know in the field, the, the whole thing is just like safely transporting the patient, which is great. I agree with that. And you need to get them sedated, safe for transport, safe for you guys and themselves and then to the hospital. But then the issue runs in, if you give someone a large benzodiazepine dose, like a large dose of Ativan, it takes hours for that to wear off and becomes very difficult to disposition those patients to the appropriate service, like get psychiatric treatment or whatever else on them. And, you know, sometimes it's not uncommon that the cause of their agitation is not even psychiatric. It's just organic brain disease um, or some sort of traumatic injury, like a subdural, uh, some sort of intracranial hemorrhage that's just manifesting as acute psychosis, um, which is rare, but definitely not unheard of. So that's why you're seeing a push towards a shorter acting benzodiazepine like Versed, uh, so you can reassess the patient sooner and it gives you just enough time for the antipsychotic, like a Haldol or a Lanzapine to kick in to kind of mood regulate those patients a lot better. Well, and that's part of the the conversation we have to have as far as your differential goes, right? Because, and it's, it's part of this conversation. When you hear someone's like, oh, it's a demonic possession, it sounds like a crazy thing, right? So it's easy for us pre-hospitally to just kind of dismiss it as, you know, just a crazy psych case, but it could actually be someone who's very sick, whether it's, you know, an overdose or an organic brain syndrome, things like that, that are very easy. Brain tumor. Yeah, could it could, yeah, exactly. You have someone who has a mass lesion and then they just, they change their personalities. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of different things that can happen with that. So, and, and just to get back to the restraints, I is, you know, especially if you're in the field, you know, just watch compressing their chest. Don't people shouldn't be on the chest should should not be on the neck. Um, you know, you it's, these are dangerous things and you see too much of this, um, preferably one person each take a limb and use cravats and, you know, whatever you have to get down. If your if your service uses restraints, um, you know, but be very careful and be very careful because sudden in custody death syndrome is a thing. Um, you know, it's something that we need to be careful of and manage appropriately. Yeah. Don't restrain the neck. Don't restrain the chest. <laughs> Not at all. Like when you hear stories about people trying to apply a tourniquet to a neck wound, like, yeah, don't, we're not, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're going to go ahead and oh, no. on that one. Oh no, 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 Kevorkian, so no Kevorkian scarf. That's, that's the fun clinical stuff. Um, and excited, excited delirium, excited agitation, whatever has been discussed, uh, kind of ad infinitum among the FOMED community. So now let's talk about some weird shit. So vampires. <laughs> <laughs> So vampire myths have been around for centuries. Spar are we talking about sparkly vampires or the old-fashioned no, vampires? No, but I'm going to... No, but real gonna, OG vampires. Real OG vampires. <laughs> like the so, Rudy Giuliani-looking Nosferatu kind oh of... Yes, God. yes. <laughs> oh, Danny, you're going to get sued. That man is looking for money. So the, the vampire... I got nothing. I got a MacBook and a <laughs> freaking microphone. Have fun. So the vampire myth originates from generally from Bram Stoker's Dracula, right? We know that that's like right. the kind of the, the seed story. The character in Bram Stoker's Dracula is, played, is based off of Vlad Depeche, um, Vlad the Impaler. He was a, a king from many years ago who essentially killed his enemies with spears. Um, 
the the rumor was he was so voracious in his aggression that he actually drank blood and blah 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 blah. And that's what Bram Stoker based his novel off of. So when that novel came out, it was during a time where people knew nothing. So we have to kind of focus on like, all right, we didn't know what medicine was at the time. So the typical description of a vampire is, you know, someone who's pale is usually out at night and all that kind of thing. And that all kind of sounds like anemia or a vitamin D deficiency, um, which are all medical issues. But then also if you're anemic, you're quote blood hungry. So you want to actually, you know, get more blood into you, which is where that came from. But there's also historical documentation of what people thought were vampires after this novel came out and people didn't realize that vampires were not real. So there's actually medical conditions that can make people seem like vampires. Uh, specifically, there's a type of porphyria and then there's also a genetic disorder or, or well, a genetic change that can cause it. Um, Mike, give us some of the specs on porphyria and then also for xeroderma. All right. So porphyria, I'm sure a lot of the EMTs and medics listening on this are like, what the hell is porphyria? I'm so like, let me at least, at least tell you what porphyria is. <laughs> so it, it's, a, it's a group of disorders that are from a buildup of natural chemicals that produce porphyrin in your body. Uh, porphyrin is one of the essentials for functioning hemoglobin. Um, so it's a protein in your RBCs that, that links to porphyrin um, and helps hemoglobin function appropriately. So there's a whole array of conditions called the porphyrias that, that exist. Uh, they're either genetic or spontaneous. One of them in particular is called porphyria cutanea tarda, um, which causes skin lesions when you're exposed to the sun, which you can only imagine if someone learns about vampires and then they happen to run into somebody with, with porphyria cutanea tarda, they're going to be like, holy shit, guys. See, and, people, what I just and people laugh when you say you're allergic to the sun. It turns out you can actually kind of be allergic to the sun a little bit. You can oh, for real. Sure. Straight so, up, so, but, but with porphyria cutanea tarda, you don't sparkle. That's the case. No, you do not. You do not. Unfortunately. But, there are, but, but there's always every year you see on the news, there's a story of like some kids who only go out at night and they can't play in the sun because it actually damages their skin. And yeah, yeah, yeah they're, called, they're called they're called medical students. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> never outside. Just um, I, same, same thing. I listen. I came back from the island with a vitamin D deficiency. I feel it. <laughs> we don't we don't go outside much. So yeah, when, when you so with these specific skin conditions, right? Again, this is where you know in the story of Dracula we had this person who only came out at night. So people with porphyria cuneotarda and with xeroderma, um, xeroderma pigmentosum, it, it's a, a mismatch, a DNA mismatch repair problem. Um, essentially, you go out into the sun and you develop blisters and lesions on your skin from it. Um, so you really can't be out in the sun. So these are people who cannot be out in the sun because of their actual medical condition. And that ties into part of this vampire myth. Now, right. and, and also just think about it. Like, you know, you think about it from a, from a forensic perspective, this was what the 1500s, the 1600s, people drop dead all the time. And then you just found them in their, in the yard and you'd be like, what happened? Well, you know, you were just on the cusp of going from evil spirits to, we now know that a imbalance of bodily humors actually causes disease as opposed to evil spirit <laughs> possession. It's really easy to, how do you determine cause of death? Like they're probably like, I don't know. It was probably some evil, that evil guy who walked around at night. He probably drank his blood. So we're going to get into some really interesting stuff about causes of death and, <laughs> and, and stuff like that in a minute. Um, Kevin, I, I want to know some of your thoughts on, on this. Is it because I'm pale and <laughs> <laughs> you're usually out at night, you know? Yeah, no. Um, 
I don't I don't really have anything else to really add to the whole people acting like vampires other than I have a, a newer example. Oh, we're ready. Uh, I mean, it's just funny. I, I used to do a lot of uh, tumbling on Tumblr back in the day. And oh. <laughs> after the Twilight books started coming out, there were girls straight up on Tumblr that were like, I need to suck my boyfriend's blood or else I'm going to die. And this, right. was like, this was like a thing. Do you remember? Do you remember when uh, it was Angelina Jolie was married to Billy Bob Thornton way <laughs> yeah. back, and they had like vials of blood. Each other's blood. Yeah. Each other's blood. Yeah. yeah. Wait, yes. you guys, you guys don't do that. Alexis and I have uh. our vials on each other at all times. <laughs> I, listen, I know we don't kink shame on this show, but I really want to start kink shame. Listen, <laughs> these were like teenage girls, all right? They were like probably 14, 15, 16, and they were like. They were going on. Remember, ask you. Does do people still ask you who or the Yahoo answers? You who? You who? I'm, I'm sure Yahoo, between, between Yahoo so and Quora, the Yahoo and like answers. There's, there's there were like there. girls like going on Yahoo answers. Like, how do I safely remove the blood from my boyfriend's body without killing him? I need to drink it. I, I don't know. It was just so. Here's the thing. No, you don't. No. <laughs> Girl, no. And you, you absolutely know, you absolutely know there was some desperate man out there that was just like, was like just yeah, a little bit yeah. of blood. All right, fine. Yeah. Just, just, just a bit. Okay, that's fine. I mean, whatever <laughs> gets you going, if, if 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 it gets me there, that's fine. So yeah, so you've got these, you've got these skin conditions that that can add to it. And again, this isn't something that we're going to treat in the field, but you know, you can have someone specifically with with zero derma, where they they go out in the sun, they're not properly covered, they get a very bad to the point of being treatable sunburn. Um, this is something that, you know, it, it just comes down to pain management and like that, but it, it is a condition that, um, that you might actually see. Um, I now want to get into uh, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, um, which, you know, is a, a classic novel by Mary Shelley. So <clears throat> the background with Frankenstein, which is another great book, um, the original with Boris Karloff, I think is the, is the correct version of Frankenstein. Um, but I'm also a whore for old films. So there's that, but this novel was created essentially uh, as a challenge. Um, this was after there's a whole story you can find online. There was a volcanic explosion that essentially caused uh, a summer to have no sun, and a bunch of authors hung out in a cabin and they had a dare of who could write the scariest novel. Mary Shelley wrote a book about a man who was created out of body parts, uh, and it's supposed to represent the hubris of man and the advancements of science. So this, you know, turned into a you know, kind of the, the story was, you know, has science gone too far, right? Where, you know, now we're able to create whole new people. But I thought it was interesting because the, the way that the story that Shelley wrote goes, you know, people, they, they robbed, robbed graveyards to essentially assemble a person, right? Um, but I do think it's interesting when it comes to the context of transplant rejection, um, and treatment for transplant rejection in general, because you have patients who have had, you know, cadaveric parts transplanted into them, and they're going to have these longstanding autoimmune disorders. So if you're in the field and you have someone who, you know, for example, recently had a heart transplant or a liver transplant, they're going to be chronically immunosuppressed. So you're going to have these people who are just going to get sick over and over and over again. So it, for me, it fit a fairly you know, a, a, a fitting Halloween theme where now that we have, we, we're still dealing with COVID, um, you know, we're still dealing with all these other things. And now we're getting into flu season as well. So you have to watch, if you have someone who recently was transplanted or had any transplant in the history of their lives, 
they're going to be immunosuppressed. They're going to get sick. And in the hospital, they're going to be treated with antibiotics and things like that. But you have to be aware of that in the field because we're going to start seeing a lot of pre-hospital sepsis again. So Mike, talk quickly about transplant rejection. Um, there, there's not a lot that we can do about it in the field, but just give us some of the pathophys for that just as a quick background. Oh, so essentially with transplant rejection, so it, it is you try to prevent transplant rejection by giving immunosuppressants. And depending where someone is on in their um, post-transplant time period will depend what type of rejection they get. So there is hyperacute, acute, chronic, and then graft versus host. Um, so for hyperacute, it's like immediate onset, like usually within hours to days of the transplant. Acute is within weeks to months. Usually EMS, and, and to be honest with you, a lot in the emergency department, especially if you're not at a transplant center, um, you deal with chronic transplant rejection, meaning in primarily with like kidneys, because kidney transplant is very common in the U.S., so you'll see just like, you know, failure, like, you know, someone needs to restart dialysis, those sorts of things. But in particular, I think more getting to like the meat and bones, what you want to talk about is really like the sickest you'll see in the field for post-transplant is acute transplant rejection. So you have essentially your leukocytes in your body, which fight off things. It's essentially your body not recognizing the, the, the transplanted organ because the body recognizes this from somebody else, essentially. Um, and you can start having uh, organ failure depending on what organs transplanted. Additionally, you can also get infection of the transplanted organ and the immunosuppressants make you significantly prone to certain rarer infections. And I always say when I'm teaching somebody about transplant rejection or evaluating a transplant patient to have a very high index of suspicion for infection in those patients, especially if they feel something's off and not right. And it could honestly be as something as little like a big red flag for a kidney transplant patient, for instance, is saying like, my urine output is like a little decreased, like not even kidding. Like some people will say, I normally pee four times a day. I'm peeing two times a day for the last couple of days. And I can tell you something's off and nothing else changed. And that, that should trigger in your head. Oh, this is something to do with like transplant rejection. And in the, in the emergency department, we do a whole bunch of like lab work, imaging studies to, to evaluate this sort of stuff. But for the field in, in EMS, or if you're a nurse listening to this, like the initial triage of a transplant patient, I would say big things to be wary of is unexplained tachycardia. So, you know, when you're on an immunosuppressed, that means you may not necessarily mount an immune response. So you may not have fever. You may not even have an elevated white blood cell count. You may not have other usual stigmata of, uh, of an immune response. But one thing that's pretty sensitive is elevated heart rate. So if you have someone that's tachycardic, that is a transplant recipient that you really don't have a good feel as to what's going on. One of the things you should be thinking about is uh, early infection. So Kevin, talk to us about some of the considerations you'd have to have for transport and someone in this situation. So they recently received a transplant of some kind, and obviously it's not going to be like an autologous transplant that tends to not actually have uh, any self-reaction. But I have someone who they just had a transplant, um, they're rejecting it, now they have to go up to a specialty center. What kind of special considerations do I have to take to safely move that patient and get them to the place that they need to get to? I mean, all of your management is really um, individualized depending on what organ they had transplanted. A lot of times I have like a post-heart patient who, or maybe the surgery failed and they've got somebody's heart in their chest and isn't working. They have an impella device or even an ECMO device. So considerations for transport is whatever you're told to do for somebody who's like just a recent transplant and maybe the transplants failed, 
Um, it's going to be ind really individual management depending on what it is. Like a kidney, you're going to obviously want to probably restrict fluids because the kidney's not functioning. And you're going to want to be mindful of things like pulmonary edema or fluid backing up into other places and be mindful of blood pressure and heart rate. Um, heart patients, like you got to be quick. Um, impella devices are great, but if, if there's nothing helping the impella device, it's basically useless. ECMO is going to be a specialty team the whole way. So in terms of transport, you are going to be working with them to um, effectively and safely manage the transport of this patient. And so for the most part, no, no, yeah, go ahead. Ed. So I was going to ask, so with, with all of us here, right? Cause we all, we all have pre-hospital uh, experience and backgrounds pre-hospitally. Let's say we get to somebody and, and Caroline, I want to bring you in on, on this. So you get a call, you have someone who, you know, they recently had, let's say they had a kidney transplant and your patient's just complaining of just generalized back pain and fever. How, how do you approach that once you actually get in? What do you think is the best way to go through that? Um, I mean, I would probably just do like comfort care, like treat for like probably, I mean, I would assume like sepsis at first. Right. So th this is one of the, the reason I ask about the condition is, you know, you can hear a lot of times work in BLS, you can hear, you know, these kind of big elaborate stories about mm -hmm. what actually happened with the patient and it can get kind of scary, right? Like, Oh my God, I had, he had a kidney transplant. He had a heart transplant. And it sounds like a lot of serious things pre-hospitally for these patients. We're generally just doing supportive care. Yeah. You know, if, if they're septic, sure, we can do some fluid replacement. We can maybe put them on pressors trying to get their, their blood pressure up. But again, that depends on, you know, what type of transplant they had. Cause if you have someone who had a heart transplant, generally during your heart transplant, your vagus nerve is transected and doesn't work the way that it initially would. So there's a lot of considerations that we have to take on to that. Danny, do you have anything else on, uh, on Frankenstein problems? Uh, no, you know, the biggest thing I, I want to touch back on, especially for, you know, new EMTs and, you know, even new paramedics and stuff is that tachycardia is a big sign. If you've got somebody who generally isn't doing a lot of physical activity and they've got a heart rate in 100, 110, 120, something's wrong. Even if they look pretty good, I usually look at that rate and I go, I don't like something, something's not good here. There's, if I can't find a reason why that heart rate's elevated, I, I'm concerned. Um, tachycardia and tachypnea to me are the two biggest vital signs that I look at. Um, blood pressure, eh, I mean, it's a late sign, but that tachycardia and tachypnea, if I get somebody who's got those two, um, you know, like a heart rate of 110 and a respiratory rate of 28, you've got my attention. Um, yeah. I'm certainly not handing it off to a BLS crew. Uh, if you're a BLS crew and you see that and you can't explain why they're tachycardic, you definitely want to tip people off. This is where you want to get your paramedic involved. This is where you want to get your ER nurse involved. Like, hey, I think this guy might be sick. That might be the impetus for them for getting better. So just another quick thing to put together. If you especially for people in like the transport world. Um, if you know somebody had a recent transplant, their symptoms for transplant rejection are awfully similar to something else we see, especially in hospitals. And that's um, transfusion reactions with one-to-one -to, -one to blood, tachycardia, fever, tachypnea. And the weird one is the back pain. You start seeing that kind of stuff in a lot of rejections. So that's just kind of clues to look out for if somebody, I mean, if someone had a recent transplant, you're probably going to know when your highest index of suspicion should be sepsis just from the surgical site alone. After that, your next thought is going to be a rejection. So one additional like pearl I wanted to bring up for everybody, like talking about immunocompromised patients, 
and just tachycardia in general, like tachycardia as an ED physician, when I'm, when I see someone tachycardic, that is, a, that is a red flag in my head. Like there's a saying where I practice, like you don't just discharge someone that's tachycardic. You have to find a reason. And if you don't have to, if you don't have a reason why they're very tachycardic, you have to like keep digging. Did you so say there's my, a saying that's in your head? No, like, did I say that? I meant to say it to yourself. <laughs> Is that what, what I said? I when I'm sitting in the say, ER talking to myself. <laughs> giving myself maxims and pearls in my head. <laughs> this is something I tell myself in my where, head all the time. There's a saying where I practice. Um, but it's, essentially, so what it comes down to is there's, there's an index that I use and that a lot of other emergency providers use uh, called the shock index. And essentially what that is, it's, it's a tool where you just take the patient's heart rate and divide it by their systolic blood pressure. So a normal value is 0.5 to 0.7. That's a, what's called a normal shock index. But as the number gets higher, it's shown to be more sensitive for diagnosing occult shock. So essentially, like if someone has like a shock index of greater than 1.3, um, it correlates with a high risk of mortality, very high risk of mortality. So the, the, the meat and potatoes of it is essentially, if you have someone with a really high heart rate and a low systolic blood pressure, that is a big index that something is going on and should be cluing you into that. I'll even go, Mike, I'll even go a little bit further um, at a basic level, you know, at the at the low level of EMTs. If your heart, if your patient's heart rate is higher than their systolic blood pressure, there's a problem. You don't even have to do math. That's if a good quick a, metric. Yeah. If you've got a heart rate of 120 and a systolic of 100, something's going on. Yeah, that's, that's a big measure. So we're going to take a break here. We're going to send it to Dr. Peter Antevi for one of his pediatric pearls, and we'll come right back. Hey, everyone. This is Dr. Peter Antevi with another pediatric pearl. We're going to talk about a diagnosis that you may have never heard of and you may never hear of in your career, but a parent may tell you, hey, my child has a Chiari malformation. What is a Chiari malformation? It's essentially... It's a structural problem in the base of the skull where the child's skull is essentially too small for their brain. And so the base of the brain gets pushed down through to the bottom of the skull, not in a dangerous way, but those kids are very difficult to diagnose. They oftentimes have headaches and they need to be diagnosed with an MRI. And ultimately that small piece of bone at the bottom of the skull gets removed to just give them more space. Don't panic on these kids. If the parent says, my kid's brain is pushing through their skull, there's no need to immobilize them, put them in a seat collar and slam them down on a backboard, which hopefully you're not using anymore. But essentially, this is just a, you know, a known entity. The kids can get treated once they get diagnosed. This is not a worrisome pre-hospital diagnosis. So hopefully when you see or hear that in the future, you don't get concerned, you take a deep breath, and you treat those children as normal. This has been Dr. Peter Antevi with another Pediatric Pearl. And our thanks to Dr. Antevi. So now we're going to start moving into some other weird stuff because this is this is the most fun I've had writing Woo! an episode in a long time. Uh, Dr. DeFilippo, are werewolves real? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, live, I live in New York City. You know how many werewolves I see? Is pimping uh, easy? No. Hell, so, so I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of so, like. See, the thing references. is, I've been led to understand that there's only werewolves in London. Uh, I was about to. Is <laughs> there American werewolves in Paris? Thank ooh. you. Oh, there you go. Rose. There wasn't an American werewolf in London. 
Yes, at the time. It was. But. So, so again, and this this comes back to you know older stories. Um, if you haven't seen, and I've talked about Freaks before on the show, but if you haven't seen Todd Browning's 1932 film Freaks, please go do that. It's one of the best older horror films that are out there. It was also Todd Browning's follow-up to Dracula and the reason that he stopped directing a film because it was super controversial. So, Also in the Twilight films. Yeah, well, don't watch the Twilight films. All we've learned from the Twilight films are that if you have a werewolf in your life, be careful with your newborn baby because that werewolf may fall in love with your newborn baby. You have to be very they, careful. That, that's actually they named the baby after something stupid, didn't they? Yeah, like, Renesme. Yeah. That yeah. is the combination of the mother's mother's name and the father's mother's name. Yeah. That's yeah. what? That sounds right. And then the middle yeah. name was like a mashup of their father's names. What? Yeah. 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 This yeah, was twi- an actual thing that it was, happened. It in was the book. probably written by a 12 year old. Now that all, I think about all the Twilight films. Look at, films look at Danny just... getting all boomer level triggered. quality stuff. All the are, you messing, are you messing with traditional names? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? You're vamp- Back in my day, our vampires used to suck blood. No. I follow up to that. No, <laughs> you don't. And we're done here. Have everybody have a nice day. So, I'm safe. The, the only things that, that that the Twilight film showed us is that Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart can do better. That's really that's yeah. That's, that's what it proved to us. That's actually I mean, they, the birth they of had our about as much chemistry between them as uh, the Flat Earthers theory on Flat Earth a little bit. Uh, exists. So. Although I listen, I will say Robert Pattinson looks legit in Batman, and Kristen Stewart looks legit as Princess Diana. That's all. Oh, I haven't seen the uh, screenshot of that yet. We've, yeah, we've they're all we've a, we've a marrow washed Princess Diana with an American. <laughs> Okay, now so, that we're off into the weeds. So with <laughs> no, no, this so, is and important. <laughs> so and again, a a classic Halloween trope are werewolves, right? Lon Chaney right. was into the, the Wolfman, and that's kind of the original. You know, this was part of the Universal Monster series. This is with you know Dracula and Frankenstein and all that. So when you see you know this werewolfism, and again, it's it's based off of you know different mythologies from uh, from years ago, but there are also medical conditions that can make people look sort of like werewolves. Um, Specifically, there's a disease called hypertrichosis. It only affects a couple hundred people worldwide. Uh, it's not super widespread. And you tend to see people that suffer from these on talk shows. Um, you know, they tend to be called like the wolf boy and things like that. Frankly, it's kind of a benign condition of just excess hair growth. There's nothing that you're going to treat pre-hospitally. But I thought it was interesting that you can have these patients who just look like wolves and they're just never going to stop. And again, it's it's to point out like they're not excessively like it's not that they have like excessive body hair like you would see walking around the beach at the jersey shore in the summer they have like <laughs> their their entire aesthetic is essentially just fur like they're just one of the uh, one of the independent risk factors for hypertrichosis which i thought was super interesting is being italian i mean uh, that was a we joke all, we all just explained that was true and that's I exactly why it. i keep my shirt on at the beach <laughs> <laughs> that's why i got them tan lines so oh, that's uh funny. Yeah, another classic thing also is, you know, when we're talking about Halloween films, circus sideshows, things like that, is you have the bearded lady was a very classic trope in circus sideshows. And it turns out that this can be a side effect of polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, and there's really? actually, yes, there's actually a, uh, a signif- fairly significant, I would think, uh, cohort of women that are suffering from PCOS that have developed support groups for uh, hirsutism, which is an excess hair growth. So Mike, walk through us through some of the risks with PCOS and why uh, why some of our 
favorite characters from film um, have beards? Well, it's not necessarily just PCOS. There's a lot of things that can cause hirsutism. I think PCOS is just like one that's widely known. Um, so, you know, PCOS, just for listeners' perspective, is polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, it's essentially a hyperandrogen syndrome, meaning you make uh, androgens, which is colloquially like male sex hormone. Um, leads to a lot of things, hirsutism being one of them. Hirsutism is just the medical term for terminal hair growth in certain areas, primarily uh, face, armpits, pubic hair. Um, so like, that's why you get like bearded women, quote unquote syndrome. Um, some medications can also cause it. Uh, it can also be seen with some like other endocrine disorders. So part of the reason this is important to bring up when, especially in the setting pre-hospitally is you can have these patients who have these androgen problems and we're not taught um, in, in EMT school or certainly not in medic school. We're not really taught the pathways of different androgens. And you can have these patients who they have these androgen insensitivity problems. It can lead to hypertension. It can lead to tachycardia. There's a whole bunch of different um, enzymes and like that, that can actually cause further problems. So if you do see a female patient that has a full on beard that you have to consider what their biological pathways look like. And if they're tachycardic, if they're hypertensive, if they're showing these signs, you can treat them you know, essentially like, cause you can have someone who has, you know, just excess epinephrine circulating through their body. Uh, so they're, you know, they're constantly hypersympathetic. So it's just something to look out for. Uh, um, I have something else to add to that. So go for it. Uh, never mind. There's also you know, obviously the endogenous conditions that could cause um, excess hair growth, but also be aware that use of anabolic steroids, particularly in females can cause hair growth on her face and on their body and other places. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you look out for you want to look out for things that could be related to anabolic steroid overdose or things related to that. Well, and these are patients that can kind of tie into our initial conversation, right? Because if they're taking anabolic steroids fairly regularly, that's something again because it makes you hypersympathetic, it makes you kind of hyper aware. They can become very agitated and very aggressive when you see them. So it's also something to consider. Again, looking at the the whole picture of the clinical diagnosis. You know, I have a female patient who's just jacked. She's all traps and shoulders and, you know, also has excessive hair growth. It might be either, you know, it could be an estrogen problem. It could be a testosterone supplementation problem. There's a lot of different things that people can do to kind of adjust their, uh, their estrogen levels from there. Or she could be in hormone therapy. Could be in hormone therapy. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a couple older things that, uh, I, I think are kind of fun. Um, it turns out that you guys know that bubonic plague still exists. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. So there's wow. A, I was right? yeah, I was aware. I just didn't know in what capacity. So it, it's well because it's treatable, right? Um, <laughs> you know, it's not the 1400s anymore. So we figured out how to treat bubonic plague, but it is it does still exist. Uh, there was a case last year in China. Um, there was also but, a know, case this year in Colorado. I'm not kidding. A 10 year old girl got bubonic plague. See, see, there you go. Um, and, and essentially, bubonic plague is treated with antibiotics. It's not something that. Uh, if you did see it pre-hospitally, you would just essentially see distal necrosis. Um, and that would be kind of your big concern, but let's talk a little bit about leprosy. Um, this is another fun, you know, Halloween horror type thing. Um, so leprosy is, it's now called Hansen's disease. Uh, a doctor in the 1800s actually discovered the bacteria. It's mycobacterium leprae. So there is actually a causative agent for this. Um, Mike, talk to us a little, little bit about mycobacterium leprae, and then we'll get into the, the history behind leprosy. Yeah. So, I mean, leprosy in general is actually, there's several different subtypes, but the one most commonly thought about is what's called lep lepromatous Hansen disease, AKA leprosy. There's also tuberculoid 
Hansen disease, all stemming from this bacterial infection with mycobacterium. Um, it's more of a chronic condition. It's not really like a fatal condition, um, but essentially it's a bacterial infection that infects inside the cell. Um, as opposed to just bacteria floating around the blood, the bacteria actually invade and live inside the cell. And it causes a lot of granulomas. Uh, and what a granuloma you can kind of think of is, is just like a big, like walled off area on blood vessels, on nerves. And you can just imagine the sort of destruction that could wreak over time. Um, interestingly, uh, in the United States, we actually do see leprosy. 75% uh, of the cases of leprosy in the U.S. are from immigrants, usually from endemic areas, Southeast Asia, Bangladesh, like those sorts of areas. Um, but 25% are actually in U.S. citizens. A majority of those are related to travel. But interestingly, there is a leprosy risk factor that exists in the U.S. And it's my favorite one. And it's exposure to armadillos. Oh, uh, yes. What? what? Yeah, why armadillos? I don't know why I know this, but I knew this also. <laughs> Do not touch armadillos. As as cute as they may seem, they they like you know. What if you like, wash like, your hands afterwards? So for like for armadillos, it's it's a natural like bacteria flora they have. Oh like, really? Yeah, mycobacterium. So don't play with armadillos. And now that our listeners have heard that, they can win at trivia. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! It's all, well. Listen, it's also an interesting thing where that's one of those weird questions that comes up on exams, mm. right? Like you have someone who they have, you know, uh, like neuro, not no neuro deficit, but they have like paresthesias and things like that, and they live in the southwest and they run like an armadillo farm, and it, you know the questions will ask like, what's your what's the culprit bacteria, and it it'll be something like Mycobacterium leprae. Um, historically, though, because what we see as leprosy now is not necessarily what leprosy was back in biblical times, right? Where the, you know, we talked about, you know, Jesus. Hey, almost, almost any skin condition probably could have been interpreted as leprosy. So somebody with shingles like, or uh, yep. you know, some kind of pox or anything. Well, even, even simple you know. things like, like impetigo. You, know, yeah. you can have someone who has like those, like those yellow crusts. They might think that it's their skin coming off. Meloscum tegiosum, um, you know, it shows like these dimpled warts, essentially mm -hmm. HSV can give you type of, can give you warts like that. And there are people who have just systemic HSV that they just develop all these warts just all over their body and it's not healing. Um, there's, there's a couple instances of like, they call it like tree bark disease and things like that. So again, these are people that you'll see on talk shows where, you know, next to the person who looks like the wolf boy, they'll have someone who looks like, you know, tree beard from uh, Lord of the Rings. Jeez. Uh, tree. But, I but, know trees. Sorry. <laughs> even the trees walk in that movie. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, you have you have someone who has HSV and they can actually have all of these lesions just all over their body. Um, again, it can be very, and you can Google the, these images, but it's something that's very striking to see. Um, and, you know, just know that it's it's an organic thing. It just comes from uh, herpes simplex, vi simplex virus. So uh, let's talk about death and dying because it is hard. Yay. And now we have. Uh, it sounds like. <laughs> When you first start at a job and they're like, okay, today is death and dying today is part of your orientation. <laughs> the fun <laughs> story is that's your day every day for the rest of your career. This, this, is, true. this is what you accept. <laughs> well, some of the actually my, uh, someone I was working with uh, a couple weeks ago, we had this conversation that it's, it's a very odd and unique thing that we have in medicine in general, but in EMS specifically where the, I, I don't want to call it numbness, um, but the acclimation we have to seeing dead bodies is very specific to pre-hospital providers. You know, when like when 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 we talk to our lay friends 
and it's just like, oh, I saw three dead bodies today. They're like, good God, why? That sounds horrible. Like, <laughs> yeah. why did you do that? And it's like, well, it was a Monday. Oh, sure. <laughs> Man, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> no, but my first call ever. <laughs> but we, you know, it's funny because we we we've kind of clinicalized death and we've taken it away from what it used to be. Like people died at home all the time, and you know that's where you were. That's where you were laid out in your parlor and that's where you ended up, you know, getting buried in your backyard and things like that. Like it was a much more intimate family thing. And we've taken that away. Like, I mean, that's starting to come back a little bit. Like I think um, hospice care and palliative care is definitely making a comeback. And I think that's great. You know, and and certainly that was the kind of the origin (laughs) of what awake is, right? Like you just wait, wasn't it so that in case the person wasn't actually dead, you didn't end up. Yeah. It's it's literally just (laughs) hang out. Waiting for is he actually dead or is he just shit? Yeah, you would you would wait like a certain amount of uh, days and have them like displayed. I don't know if it was in your home or at a place designated in the community, but you displayed the person and you made sure they didn't come back to life before you buried them. Yeah, no, exactly. But and I'm pretty sure some coffins had bells too. Yeah, so oh, there's so, also there was all oh, sorts of systems. We're gonna yeah. get into that, believe me. Oh, so. Yeah. So Danny actually made a really good point. There were times, you know, and this is all, you know, 17th, 18th century stuff, but, you know, there there was a time where drinking water was not a safe bet because a lot of water was contaminated. So people just drank booze, which that, that, (laughs) yeah, the 1800s sound great, but people would get at just hammered and pass out and people would be like, well, Dave's dead now. And they they would go. They would go through the burial procedures and there's there's anecdotal stories of coffins with like scratch marks inside of them. Well, let, let's also put it into perspective. Dave's dead, but the other four guys that were with him are just as hammered as he was. Yeah. So they're like, well, better put him in the ground, dig a hole. Yeah. There you go. So and there's there's a lot of different stories of different um, mechanisms where, you know, they would put like different bell systems and like that in case the person you know woke up in the coffin they could ring the bell but one of the things they didn't account for was air passage so even if someone was alive in their casket they would suffocate before they you would got suffocate to them. Yeah. Got to them. <laughs> um i shouldn't laugh at that no but that's you, you may, know can you imagine but, but again, walking uh, past a graveyard and hearing a little hearing a bell yeah hell no and now i have an idea for a horror novel right Dude, there, there's that would be the fastest I will have ever run in my life. If I'm walking past a graveyard and I just hear a bell ringing, hell no. Wait, no, wait no, no. you know how like um, fortune tellers are like when they talk to spirits, like, oh, if you're there, ring a bell. Is mm. that where that's from, you think? Maybe. Eh, God, oh I hope God. not. <laughs> I'm thinking of the Haunted Mansion ride from Disney. But... So there are a couple <laughs> interesting stories about this. Um, and and this is and again when when we talk about your clinical diagnosis, like this is why we have to apply a heart monitor to obviously dead patients, right? Now, when you have someone who's been like you know let's say dismembered or whatever, that's that doesn't apply. But this is why we have to have those extra confirmatory steps before we actually do a pronouncement, either pre-hospitally or in the or in the hospital. Guys, does this, does this always, still happen modern day? Yes. You think there's always one or two if you listen, if you read it's the magazines or get on the internet. There's always somebody that was pronounced dead by a paramedic, and they turned out getting to the funeral home. And oops, don't be those people. So, I, I've, I, I've had in my career so far a few times where someone's been pronounced, and then after they're pronounced, like let's say they're asystolic, 
they do have like a spontaneous rhythm all of a sudden. And then the epinephrine kicks in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've, had, I've had a couple of unpronouncements. Yeah. And, and, and it happens in 2017. Um, and again, this is all being the show notes. Uh, in the UK, there was a man who went in for a root canal. Uh, he was treated with diazepam and uh, the dentist decided that he died. So oh. they, they sent him away. And when he got to the funeral home, he was still breathing. Now, he, he ended up expiring shortly thereafter, but that ended up being his whole story. And then there's a story as well, and this is coming out of um, just a... a so wait, a wait, let me get this straight. The, the tooth guy mm-hmm. decided the guy was dead. Uh, yeah. <laughs> He's still a medical yep. doctor, Daniel. Yeah, no, still a doctor. You're not a doctor, you're a dentist, too. I'm not, disparag- you die? I'm, not, I'm not disparaging dentists. It's just, it just doesn't seem like it's your wheelhouse. I mean, I, I don't go around diagnosing like when someone needs a root canal. So, you know, I, I just think maybe stick to your, your trade. Well, so, and there's, there's a worse story that I found uh, a story of a woman who, and had, had died, uh, you know, in quotes and someone heard, you know, a bunch of rustling in, in the casket essentially. And when they exhumed the patient, uh, not only was she laying prone when she was put in the, ca- in the coffin supine, uh, she had also delivered a baby. What? So- oh, God damn it. I'm reading it right <laughs> yeah. now. This is horrifying. Wait, that's recent yeah. or that was like historical 1890. Yeah. It's, it's a very uh, old story. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, which, but, which again, hopefully not something that we would ever encounter. But oh, there is, okay. there is some history. Imagine you, being the person. Imagine being the person. It's like, hey, guess what you get to do today? I need you to go make sure that that body, that that coffin that's dead. making noises, I need you to make sure the thing inside it's dead. And then you pull it out <laughs> and you open the coffin. You're like, oh no. <laughs> and there's hey, not no. one but two people in there. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So like, but also like that that poor woman like having to go through labor during that during that time. So wait, let me read the passage. Yeah, it's from the 1890 edition of the Undertaker's Journal, where a woman was buried alive. Which definitely a journal that needs to come back. I would read the Undertaker's Journal. Sure, right, right. The body of a woman named Lavrinia Merrily, a peasant who was supposed to have died from hysterics, was placed in a vault on Thursday, 3rd July. I'm sorry, th- on sorry sec- I'm sorry. What's with the voice? <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. I'm going to read in the regular just, voice. Just read it. All right. I- <laughs> I wanted, uh, I wanted to sound like an old newsreel, too. Like, yeah, I wanted it to sound like a... <laughs> and today, there was a woman who was found in a coffin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On Saturday evening, it was found that the woman had regained consciousness, had torn her grave clothes in her struggles, had turned... Wait, complete... what's, a grave, what's grave clothing? I don't know. It's what what they, that's what they bury you in. It's the 1890s. That's what it's dress. called? Yeah, it's grave clothing. Yeah. Oh. Like now may it's a fan. Now it's may, it's whatever suit or whatever. But may yeah. I oh, TJ Maxx got started. Yes, sorry, Dan. <laughs> had torn her grave clothes in her struggles. Had turned completely over in the coffin and had given birth to a seven-month-old child. Oh, both, fuck. both mother and child were dead when the coffin was opened for the last time. Oh. Do you think? You think they were dead or they weren't still kicking? Huh. I mean, right? at that point, do you? Oh, do you what do you? I mean, they didn't get it right the first time. Like, are they, are they sure? Can you, like, can you again? Well, can you so imagine the funny, like the guy like, are you oh, really no. sure this time? Are you sure, Dave? 
Are you sure? <laughs> well, so, and, and, you know, during these times they had to actually find ways to ensure that the, the dead were actually deceased. And obviously now in modern times, we have cardiac monitors, we have ultrasound, you know, we have many different ways to make sure there's actually a cessation of cardiac or cerebral function. But back in the day, they did not have that availability. And there were many different ways where they tried to determine if someone was dead. Uh, my personal favorite <laughs> This is so good. This is again, this is in the show notes. This is the the slug on this website is buried alive. Common Victoria era doctors use 10 methods to prevent Top oh, 10 anime betrayals. God. So how, Top 10 anime betrayals. I'm so going there. So it was so it's it's how how they determined someone was still alive and how to stop someone from being buried alive, which is they they figured out, oh, this is such a problem, we're gonna stop it. And my oh. personal favorite is they would take a flag which I imagine is like the lawn flags they have, you know, when you put out for like chemical treatments like that. And they would just take a metal rod with a flag on it and just jam it in your chest. Just sorry. What? Like, like yeah. pierce you. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Like, like they would, if you were dead alive, before, if you're sure yeah. dead now. Yeah. So they would do it. They would do it as if it was like, imagine doing a needle decompression or a pericardial synthesis. They would just throw a flag in there and they would oh, no. look to see if the flag twitched. What? While I think while I think you think that's cool and probably the best one, I would make the argument for the smoke enema. I was just going there. I'm sorry. I was what? I was I was gonna let you guys cover the smoke oh, enema. I mean what the, the hell is this so let me just, here's, wait, wait, here, here's the thing. When you hear a description of a smoke enema, it is exactly, exactly what you think what it sounds like. Yes. And I think uh, it needs to make a comeback as part of acute resuscitation. Please, please make sure just, just as a reference point. Like to, to everyone listening, this is how far we've come in resuscitative medicine in 150. Oh, I mean, clearly um, not that far. Actually, Edward, well, I think we're going right back to that because now a possible treatment for COVID 19 is oxygen rectally. What? Cool, cool beans. I will find you all the link. Huh? So, no, we're like, not going there. Like, is it like those teenagers that soak no. alcohol, like tampons no. and alcohol, and put it up their butts? Oh, is it like that's that kind of thing. thing? Mike, this take, a, a, whole, take a minute. There's a whole another rat hole we're going down. Mike, take a minute and go through uh, what the the thought process of smoke enemas were. So, my 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 preceding physician colleagues from the 1800s. Um, <laughs> apparently, this is literally where the term uh, "blowing smoke." They didn't have to take step from. one back then. Boo, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, you stand on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> the smoky shoulders of giants. Um. So. They used to use a smoke enema in resuscitation. It consisted of a tube, a fumigator, and some bellows. And bellows. the idea was by... <laughs> by oh, I mean, it wasn't, they didn't do yeah. it with their own mouths? No? Oh, they no. Used oh, no, it gets worse. It was just they had to make sure it was sanitary. Yeah, it wasn't like I, a, a casual smoke introduction. Like, they okay. put smoke this is up legit. there. And it's yeah. also... What's, what's funny is... This probably isn't the origin of the term blowing smoke up my ass. Like that's probably this is probably not where it came from, despite it literally being what happened. So they would they would take a fumigator, a bellow, and this tube, and then put tobacco smoke up the no. rectum. And no. it was believed at the time to be a common cure for a lot of ailments, despite cardiac arrest. These are other ones that your doctor could have treated you with a smoke enema for headache and respiratory illness. Sure. What? Sure, makes sense. So do you ever think okay. The patients blew smoke rings, and that's how they were like, "Oh yeah, they're still alive." This the size of the smoke I, ring is they're like, I "Oh, they're there's they're still a little bit alive." It was a small ring. Wait a minute, uh, Mike. This is this is insane, right? 
one documented case in 1746 came from the resuscitation of a man's wife who was revived by using a simple tobacco pipe. The stem was shoved into his wife's rectum while he covered the other end of the pipe with his mouth in blue. What? I mean, I don't know what CPR class you guys took, but that makes common sense to me. I mean, that well, here's the thing. And that was clinical. That was like evidence based research back in that the was day. like cutting edge at that time, wasn't it? I think that's a little bit more of like throwing shit against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. Well, and this and this all stems from so and I, I, before we wrap this up, I want to get into why I thought it was important to have this conversation. Aside from that, it's, you know, it's fun Halloween stuff. Um, you know, it's always an interesting time of year for, you know, different types of ailments and like that. But it's it's interesting, I think, to discuss the evolution of medicine, right? Because again, a lot of the medicine that we have comes from, you know, suspect practices from the late 1800s. The reason we know about anatomy is because people in Edinburgh would go and steal bodies from graves. You know, that's that's how that that whole thing started. That's the reason that we have the awareness of what the human body looks like. So there's there's stuff from, you know, 100, 150 years ago that is just, it's really interesting to read. It's fascinating to look at how far we've come. Um, because again, there was a time not very long ago when people legitimately were like, no, the way to do this is to take tobacco smoke and introduce it rectally. That will fix them. <laughs> and, you know, now we look at that now and like, well, of course that's silly, but I, I'm interested to see, you know, where is medicine going to be in the next, whatever, 50 years where in, you know, in 50 years, are we going to look back and be like, I can't believe we used to give epinephrine for cardiac arrest. No, in 50 you years, know? they're going to look back and they're going to be like, I can't believe we used to put soapy water up people's butts to get their stuck yeah. poop out. Because <laughs> well, I, mean, I still yeah. can't believe it in modern day that we do that. <laughs> right. Well, and that's, and you know, it's, it's fun to kind of, to do thought experiments, like, you know, where are we going to go from here? Because you see that kind of logarithmic expansion that happened from, you know, even just 50 years ago. Right. Yeah. You know, well, it's hard. And even though I, I keep saying 50 years ago, I conceptualized 50 years ago as 1950. I realized it's 1970. I do too. It's bad. Um, but you know, like it, look, looking back at like the forties and fifties when cigarettes were good for you, you know, yeah. like, like those things, like my, my favorite, I, I have two favorite commercial ads that I will all, I, I've referenced <laughs> in almost every talk I've ever given. And the one is for cool cigarettes, which advertised that they were like a breath of fresh air and which is just hilarious to me. Um, there's another one that has Ronald Reagan advertising Chesterfield cigarettes, which is a whole other thing. Um, and then my second favorite ad is from the Bayer Corporation from 1899, where they advertised aspirin, heroin, and cocaine together as like a cocktail for all that for all that ails you. Like ghosts like, in your blood. Yeah, exactly. That that well, that meme like you've got ghosts in your blood. You should do cocaine about it. That like that was a that was a treatment at one point. They need to like, bring back actual cocaine infused Coca Cola. That's what I think. That needs to make a recurrence. I, I, <laughs> I, I demand excessive energy from Coca Cola right now. You can I do what I so do. Ready. Drink a bang. Yeah, Jess. I think you just drink two bangs now and just watch yourself vibrate. Just, just go about your day. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think that was, I, I'm, I'm really happy with the way this conversation went. I think there was a lot of weird stuff that we were able to kind of talk about and really get some decent medicine into it. Um, I'm excited to hear what everyone, what all the listeners think. Uh, maybe we exposed you to something you hadn't heard before, or, you know, what are some of your interesting horror movie ailments or, uh, you know, different medical concerns? Um, with Halloween coming up, Danny, I know that you're not a horror movie enthusiast, but do you guys have any recommendations for your favorite Halloween films? Oh, actually, real quick, can I plug a YouTube channel that I'm no way affiliated with, but I think is amazing? Yeah, go for it. Um, sure. Please 
go to Ask Mortician. It's a YouTube Ooh, channel yeah. about a mortician who she literally answers all these cool questions about what happens to your body after you die and like what like morticians do. All right, and that's kind of cool. I went to like a huge YouTube hole for the past couple of weeks about it, and it's so cool. Why have I not heard about this? Who am I married to? She's amazing. <laughs> who are She's, you? She is. Do we awesome. live together? <laughs> this is what i do at work in between uh transports <laughs> why her. why are you looking this up what are you telling me what are you gonna She's do to incredible me? this is so cool because i've always actually wanted to be a mortician but i thought it, everyone would think it would be weird so i've uh, never this is the first time i've heard this because i thought you would think it was weird i'm not a high i read our guy. infant son lovecraft for the first year of his life <laughs> this is also true <laughs> i i i I don't do horror movies, but I think if you're going to do something, um, if you're going to watch a movie, I think the classic original Halloween um, Ooh, okay. from the, the first one with Donald Pleasance, Jamie Lee Curtis, and uh, the first time you see Michael Myers, that that's spooky. That'll get you. That'll get you going. Um, really? Maybe not specifically Halloween, but the thing is like maybe one of my favorite uh, all time horror movies, because I have along with cosmic horror, which this thing's an alien. <laughs> I'm also into body horror, which this thing certainly does. So, yes. yeah, it does. Um, it, that's probably my favorite horror movie of all time. Like, what, what do you this? got for Halloween? So for Halloween, I was I would say actual like intense scary movie that I thought was actually very good was Babadook. Ooh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It was very good for our funny style like Halloween movie. One of my favorites, literally, is Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which you can that's find good. on Netflix. Wow. Yep, which I think is a good one. Oh, you so want kind of more lighthearted, campy stuff. You can't go wrong with like Ash vs. Evil Dead, Army of yeah. Darkness, Shaun of the Dead. If you're into horror, things, horror one of the interesting light, things about the Babadook is the Babadook is part of a new um, like category of horror films called Horrorgory, where the Babadook and it, it involves like the Babadook, it follows things like that, but where the big bad is an allegory for something else so in the babadook yeah. um it's supposed to be a metaphor for you know clinical depression and things like that because it's always kind of looming but you can never really see it um you know oddly but, enough considering i'm not good at scary movies i was able to watch the entirety of babadook and thoroughly enjoyed it like really, it, it's not really scary in the sense where like you can't watch it it's just like yeah we watched on it's your recommendation creepy. It's, it's, well that's that's the separation between that's the separation between like horror and terror right like yeah. terror is that you you're aware that there's something else out there. You just don't know what it is. That's why you get things like, you know, the thing and the mist and the fog and all that, where there's something like out there that's scary. You just don't know what it is. Hmm. Um, for me, for my Halloween recommendations, um, you have to watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show at some point during October. Mm -hmm. like, you just have to. I've never um, seen it. What? what? Yeah. Why? All right. I've don't. seen it. <laughs> I've, I've never seen it either. Don't. Really? You too? Yeah, maybe we can, we'll get together. We'll watch it. Well, we that was well. The overrun's been fun. Now everyone's fired. So. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline, what's, what's what's your Halloween film? Um, I mean, I'm not really a big horror person either. I just get dragged into watching these movies because my friends are into them. Um, I don't know if this really count i don't know if they really like count as horror i guess but um the first one i ever remember watching was blair witch project really um, great class that like watching there's no cult the, classic do you remember, yeah. do you remember <laughs> the, there's there's no feeling 
like watching the Blair Witch Project for the first time when it because when it came out, it was a big deal. Oh, yeah. And and very like, very good marketing for it. Yeah. And when mm. like when we all saw the ending, like that for a brief period of time, everyone's mind was blown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um I also recently watched um Jennifer's Jennifer's Body, which I thought was really I heard good. that was good. It was, it was actually good. I not I bad. Actually, I'll take it. I'll say that wasn't too bad. I've never I, I seen it. I don't know that Megan Fox fits into the uh, you know the scream queen category, but that's that was a that was a good one that she was. In. Does she have to? No, yeah. there, I, I don't know. I'm just saying, it. like movie about a demon that just so happens to be Megan Fox. Like, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're no, going to be a demon, that's, that's Transformers. Actually, <laughs> 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 I mean, I think right. Polter Poltergeist is my fave. Poltergeist is up there. Mm. So and it's I, a great uh, movie. Those my are the last one to me to. My wife wanted me to throw in a mention for Midnight Mass on Netflix, a little mini series. Okay. Oh, I've heard good I'll have to check that out. Yeah. All right. So I, I got to recommend classics to everybody. The Exorcist, Poltergeist, Rosemary's Baby, all the universal mo- monster stories, Dracula, Freaks, um, you know, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, all that kind of stuff. If you haven't seen the old horror movies, they're the best. Um, White Zombie, the namesake of the band, is also a great film that has Bela Lugosi in it. Check out the old horror films. The technology they have is garbage, which makes the films even better. Mm. And they're, I will die on the hill that the old horror films are the best ones, even if they're not super scary. They're just very, very well done. So check that out. Let us know what you guys think. I'm excited to hear what people have to say about horror movie diseases. And for the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Chester. Mike DiFilippo. Kevin Massa. Just Master Cola. Intern Caroline. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> we'll talk to y'all next safe. time. Get home See safe, you. everybody. See you, everybody. Happy Halloween.